On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about something that I think is going to surprise you. We're going to chat about wasted food, but when you hear what percentage of most families' food is thrown out, I think you're going to be shocked. We're also going to be chatting about questionable science. Let's just put it that way. There is a new show on Netflix, a series involving Gwyneth Paltrow and her Goop brand, and there are those who would say that this is not exactly scientific, and there are those who would say... Proceed with caution because parts of this, hmm, we'll leave it there. We'll let you listen. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. What percentage of the food that you buy or someone else in your family that does the shopping and brings it into your household, what percent of that food would you guess ends up being wasted? For me, I was thinking, okay, maybe 10%, maybe. Maybe probably less, but maybe 10% because I rarely leave anything on my plate. Same with the rest of the family. And if we have leftovers, it becomes lunch the next day. It's not common that we would just chuck a whole bunch of food. Well, when my first guest tonight studied this very thing, food waste recently, he found a far different answer from what I'm talking about. The average American household, and I see no reason that the average American household would be different from the average Canadian household. The average American household is wasting 30% of its food. Nearly a third of the food the average household is buying is eventually going into the trash. There are obviously, I think, two problems with this. One is the cost of this. He's estimating that it's costing around 1800 US dollars in food that we're not even eating. That's a lot of money. 22, 23, $2,400 Canadian. The other, which is, I think, much more troubling, is the broader issue of who this food could feed if we were not just throwing it in the garbage. Well, I want to bring in the author of that study. Ted Janicki is a professor of agricultural economics at Penn State University. He joins us now. Dr. Janicki, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, these numbers, um, I was very surprised by them. But before I get into the 30%, your study, if I understand it correctly, says 30% is the average. There are homes that you found, there are households, it was up to 80%? That's correct. So um, the majority of households in the U.S. fell in the sort of 30 to 50% waste range. Um, Like two-thirds of U.S. households were in that range. But there were some that were, yeah, upwards of 80% wasted and even the most efficient household in our study wasted around 8 or 9% of its food. Okay, 8 or 9%, I, as I said off the top, I kind of guessed when I first yeah. thought of this 10% maybe. How, 30%, even forget the 80, 30 to 50%, how is that even possible for an average family to get that much food they're not eating that they've bought? Yeah. Well, let, let before, I'll try to answer that question, but maybe I don't have the greatest answer for that, to be honest. But, you know, the 30% number that I came up with is not a, not a new number. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and other international organizations like the U.N. have been saying that for a while, that we've been wasting 30 to 40% of our food. And so the, the, it's not new, but what, it, what is new is being able to look inside individual households to try to get an idea of what's going on. And so to getting back to your question about why is it happening, um, you know, I, I don't have the perfect answer because I'm looking at people's market, behavior, market data and I'm not asking them 
asking people questions directly. But it's beginning to emerge that there, that some significant portion of this food waste is purely rational in the sense that it there's a cost and an effort to avoiding food waste, that is to saving our food and being frugal. And, you know, for uh, I've got some of my uh, more strong results in terms of linking things up with individual households say that wealthier households waste far more. And so, you know, the value of the time of their time is such that it may just be rational not to do a good job of being frugal. Um, and so that's certainly one underlying sort of reason for it. And, Another, and that makes sense. And certainly, yeah. you know, the, I, I would guess that. I would think that people who have more money probably are less careful because it's not yeah. as important, perhaps. The other part of that, though, that you found is that people who eat healthier waste more. Yeah. That was more confusing to yeah. me. Yeah, that's, a, that's disturbing. And it was surprising the first time we saw that result. But the more we looked at it and the more we thought about it and more dug into the data, it made much more sense in that healthy food are generally perishable foods. So fr- fresh fruits and vegetables are things that are highly per- perishable. And so, uh, you know, they are more at risk for waste. Um, there's no doubt about it. And the, the f- vegetable that I like to picture in my head um, as being, not, the, not that it's a main culprit, but it's a good example, is a cauliflower. Like in the U.S., we're gotten so good at growing cauliflowers that they're big, beautiful white heads of cauliflower. It's hard for a, a single-person household or a two-person household to eat a whole head of cauliflower, and they have then they have to deal with the leftovers. That again, to me, seems like an oxymoron because if you are healthier, you are, as you say, you're buying more perishables. But presumably, you're also looking at this and thinking. You know, there are things I, I can live with a slight blemish, but I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering if there is a, if we have created a sense of connection between perfect looking food and healthy food. And therefore, if it doesn't look perfect, it's not good for us. I, I think we've, we have done some of that. And I, I have colleagues that have studied food waste, you know, on the, at the farm level. And that's maybe even a bigger a bigger cosmetic is an even bigger issue there where if the, f- if the food doesn't look perfect, it's not even going to make it from the farm to the retailer. Right. So, right. so there's an awful lot of similar, I mean, the, the same issue showing up uh, at that part of the food, of the supply chain as it, at the household level. Yeah. There was a study that was done in Canada almost a year ago to the day it was released. And it said exactly that, that 58% of the food produced in Canada was wasted. And, and never, as you say, could have been grown, but as through yeah. production or whatever else you say, oh, that cauliflower yeah. doesn't look perfect. No one's going to buy it, throw it out. Yeah. That though, news, sorry, go ahead. Can I just say a piece yeah, of please. good news? There are, there are businesses popping up to try to make a new market to match um, so-called ugly produce with consumers who are willing to buy it, maybe at a discount. But so a new, new markets are beginning to form on that. But that, and again, thank goodness for that, because I mean, you just think of how much we always hear about the hungry people in our communities. And I'm sure that if there was a slight bruise in an apple or a a yogurt that was a day past the best before, they would say, that's fine. I'll eat that. I don't care. And yet we throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, it's nice to look interesting to look at maybe other countries to see how they do this. In in France, there's a, a national law that makes it illegal for supermarkets to throw away food into a landfill. They either have to give it away to a charity or compost it. 
So, um, you know, we don't have anything like that in the U.S., of course, but um, it's the, the the composting issue is an important thing. One of the one of the costs of food waste is if it does end up in a landfill, uh, food organic like matter like food that decomposes in an anaerobic situation of a landfill turns into methane, which is an incredible greenhouse gas. Mm. So it's an, there are serious environmental implications of food waste as well. Have we created, though, partly... Be- now, I understand why we've done this to a degree. We've got best before dates on things because we don't want people eating food that's way old and they're going to get sick as a result. But we also, I think, have this idea now, a lot of us in our head, if we get a, a thing of milk and it says the best before was yesterday, we say, oh, can't drink that, it's done. And there's no yeah. reason to think that, and yet we will throw it out. Have we created a legal system that has convinced us that we have to throw out a lot more food than we really do? I, th- I think there is something to that. You know, I, I've, I've been looking at sell-by dates on milk, and uh, some of my colleagues around the other co- the country, I have a colleague at Ohio State that's been doing it. And it is definitely true that those dates are, number one, confusing, and they're not, and, and number two, they are not specifically for food safety reasons. They're more of a quality indicator and so uh, milk is pasteurized, so it is not going to be unsafe. It doesn't expire or, the minute the best before right. date rolls around. Exactly, exactly. You, I mean, it it eventually will may smell a little different. It might curdle when you put it in your coffee, but it's it's generally not safe for quite you know for a long, long time. Let's go back because uh, we've sort of ventured a little from where your study was, which was household yeah. use. But here's the thing. I, I'm no genius, and I'm certainly no genius in the kitchen. My wife will attest. I'm barely functional in the kitchen. But one thing that I am clear on is that most food can be frozen. Not all foods, but most yeah. food. Why are people, if the food is starting to look like they may not use it, why are people not just freezing it for later use rather than pitching it? Well, I mean, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, freezing something that's, a, that's approaching its expiration date is perfectly valid, perfectly acceptable. Freezing leftovers, you know, is an option as well. Um, I, you know, convenience is an important factor in our, in our behavior, in our food purchasing and eating behavior. Maybe, it's, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the main issue, that it's just not convenient to do that. Um, like, like, it's pretty easy for us to access food these days, for most of us anyway. And so, um, you know, being frugal is does require time and effort. Do you think, okay, so this, I mean, again, the, the 30% that you cited, I was, I was stunned by that because when you think about what 30% of your food is, it's an enormous amount of food that yeah. people are throwing out. Yeah. Is this fixable? Well, that's a great question, and, and I, what I'm beginning to see is that if it is fixable, it's going to be quite hard because, like, like I'm tr- somewhat in, implying with some of these things that it, it's, in some cases, perfectly rational for someone to waste some amount of food um, because of time, because time is money, because it's hard to manage. If you're a small household of one or two people, it's really hard to sort of manage. Um, large package sizes or large vegetable fruits and vegetables. So some of it is sort of sort of ingrained. And from a policy point of view, um, what might be fixable is at least dealing with some of the environmental implications and thinking about uh, encouraging composting, making sure the food doesn't the wasted food at least doesn't end up in the landfill. 
That does seem fixable. It is, uh, it is a fascinating topic. It's a troubling topic, but I'm really glad that you yeah. brought some attention to it. Uh, Dr. Ted Janicki from Penn State University, thanks so much for taking some time today. Really appreciate yeah, it. My pleasure. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you go on Netflix later tonight, not right now, please, not right now. But if you go on later tonight, chances are if your algorithm is the same as mine, at the top of your screen, that big part of the screen that tries to really sell you on the best new show that Netflix has to offer, you will see a show called The Goop Lab with Gwyneth Paltrow. You've probably heard of Goop. Uh, This, though, is a multi, I think a six-part documentary series in which the actress, the celebrity, explores a number of offbeat, some might call them wacky methods of improving your health and improving your life. There is the idea of, well, exploring magic mushrooms or swimming in ice cold water or uh, vampire facials or energy field extraction and on and on and on. Now, some people are finding this entertaining and they say, oh, you know what? It's just, it's, it's silliness and I'll watch it because it's like, wow, it's out there. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it just for that. Others though, based on the fact that there is a corresponding goop website where you can buy lots of her products and it's a now multi, multi, multi million dollar enterprise. People are buying this stuff. Clearly other people are buying into what is being sold literally and figuratively and seeing or believing the true health benefits of this. And that is where things get a little interesting. Remember Gwyneth Paltrow is the person who told a bunch of women that she should take jade eggs and put them in her hoo-ha to help with your hormone balance and all the rest of the stuff. I mean, it's, it's, and if you go onto the Goop website, there is a variety of interesting sex toys and a candle that smells like her parts. And, oh, I don't know. There's a lot of vagina emphasis going on on this website. Let's put it that way. Along with yoga in a box and other things like this. So anyway, is this just good for a laugh? Or is this something we should be a little concerned about because people may follow this? Well, let me bring in Tim Caulfield. He is a Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy. He's a professor at University of Alberta's Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health. He has published over 350 academic articles and, maybe most importantly for today, he is the author of Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. He joins us now. Tim, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me on. So let's go right to the hardest question right off the bat, or at least the most direct, what I just said. Uh, Is this a lark, or is this more concerning when a show like this comes on and people start watching it? Yeah, I I think it's more concerning, and I actually think the the show itself um, is part lark, lark, you know, and it's part um, kind of punking us, you know what I mean? (laughs) But at the same time, it's part of a broader phenomenon that is really problematic, and that is the spread of health misinformation. And there's a a growing body of research, and we do some research in this area ourselves, a growing body of research that shows that this kind of misinformation can have a real impact. You know, you don't have to be a hardcore Gwyneth Paltrow fan or a hardcore conspiracy theorist to to buy into or, or be somewhat influenced by this health noise. And I think that's exactly what's happening. But there would be those, I would think, to, and now maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but there would be those who would simply say, Tim, this is not quack science or something like that. You are just someone who only believes in the regular science and the regular health that we hear, but there's other ways of doing it. And this could be very helpful for you. 
Yeah, I hear that probably daily. Actually, <laughs> um, but look, look, you know, it's interesting because you know there's a couple ways to answer that. One of the ways to answer that is if you watch the show and if you see alternative providers more generally, they they are increasingly saying that their therapy, their practice works in a measurable way. All right, they're not saying this is some kind of spiritual belief or a different worldview. They're saying this works in a measurable way, and in fact, they are increasingly justifying what they do based on science. And, you know, they'll say it's quantum physics or it's regenerative medicine or genetics have to do with this or it's the microbiome. So they'll try to bring in science to make it sound more legitimate. But, you know, when you do that, when you do that, it's entirely appropriate to measure these people against the standards of science. And if you watch the Goop show, I don't know if you put yourself through that agony, (laughs) if (laughs) if you watch the Goop show, she does this every episode. You know, she... She tries to justify some crazy practice like energy therapy uh, you know, based on quantum physics or you know, her, her vampire facial is part of the regenerative medicine movement. So you know, I, I don't buy that argument on, on, on that ground alone. There is a, a, a saying or a, a whatever you want to call it that if you are going, the, the crazier a story you can make up, the more likely people are going to be to believe it. It, it almost sounds like some of this stuff is that, you know, they won't, might not believe it if you just say, do this or this, this. But if we tell you that this will work, well, now people are going to buy into that. Uh, you know, I think that really is part of the story. Uh, there's a really interesting body of research that says that if you hear something enough, it becomes more, more believable. True. Um, in fact, a, a researcher from uh, uh, Canada, Gordon Pennycook, has done a lot of really interesting research in this area. That's how fake news works, right? You just hear it enough. And so that's what's going on you know, here. That's one of the reasons that we don't have to believe that Gwyneth Paltrow is a science expert, and I think almost no one believes that. But she has such a big megaphone. She says this stuff over and over again that it kind of creeps into... Um, our consciousness. It creeps into uh, our world. It normalizes the idea of colonics and taking supplements and getting IV vitamin therapy and all these other completely unproven uh, approaches to health. Now, some of this stuff, though, like not all of it is, I don't even know if some of it is harmful. I mean, some of it is probably completely benign. It just may not or may do, I don't know. I don't even know if it's going to do anything, but are there things that are being done that are worrisome? Uh, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, on the show, for example, um, you know, the first episodes on psychedelics, and um, which it, this is a really interesting example of what I was just talking about, because there is genuine cool research going on around the use of psychedelics to deal with mental health issues. Some of that research is actually happening right here in Canada. So she takes that clinical research that's going on in a very controlled way and uses that to justify kind of the rec- recreational, uncontrolled u- use of psychedelics, you know, out in the wild, kind of. Um, And the reason that's problematic is she talks about using this for, you know, pretty severe uh, mental health issues. The same thing happens with the energy therapy um, uh, episode where, you know, it's being recommended for, you know, pretty serious stuff. And, And the other thing is on her website, she recommends things like colonics could be harmful. She recommends letting bees sting your face. People have actually died doing that. Um, she recommends all these other things. But, you know, Scott, what worries me the most is it, it just invites this erosion of critical thinking, right? It, it creates suspicion around science and invites this erosion of critical thinking. And, and in this era of misinformation, that is not a good trend. Tim, at the, at the beginning of each show, there is a disclaimer saying this is not medical advice. Um, does that cover things? 
Yeah, that's you know, it's a really good question, and 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 throughout the episodes, at least some of them, you'll have her experts. I'm putting that in quotes, by the way. Um, sometimes give uh, sort of soft disclaimers too, right? You know that, that people should go see doctors. But the problem is that the overall message of every episode is that this works, and, and they get that across by using these anecdotes. They'll have you know some of the Goop staff um, try psychedelics, try energy therapy, you know, try different kinds of of diets and and the message at the end is this works because this anecdote demonstrates that it works and that's that's a really interesting phenomenon there's research that shows that a powerful testimonial powerful story can overwhelm the science and that happens all the time you know that's one of the reasons pop culture um, you know fools us so often we, we have to always remind ourselves that an anecdote even if it happens to us by the way Scott if you know something that we experience that's not good evidence. We need the real science. But is she wrong then? Let, let's say that, that she's had 25 people try this thing and four of them, it's worked for them. Is it then wrong to say that this is something I can recommend to you because it works? Um, no, she can't recommend that. You know, she need, and, and by the way, the, the numbers are never that big, right? So let's say that she did that in, in a, a controlled manner, that she had you know, one arm of the group was not getting the active ingredient, the other arm was getting the active agreement, uh, uh, active treatment, uh, and she did this in a very controlled way. That's a scientific experiment, right, if it's done well. Um, and even if she did use 25 people, that's a small study, and I would call it exploratory. When you're just talking about one person, it's not controlled, right? That's not a study. And in fact, in fact, the scientific method is specifically designed to cut through the noise, right, that bias that is inherent in our own experiences. That's that's why you have these controlled experiments. And I think a lot of people forget that. I, you know, I get swayed by stories, too. We all do. We should constantly remind ourselves uh, of, of that reality. I, Tim, I like to believe that we are a skeptical people, that we're not naive, that we, you know, we will look at something like this and we will judge it with some sort of common sense and say, you know, that makes sense or that doesn't make sense. maybe we're not doing that. Maybe when you put it with Netflix, that gives it a level of credibility to say, yeah, it's worth watching. And there's something here. I I mean, I don't know if that, that takes us there. I don't know. Well, I I do think we need to put it in, in perspective, right? You know, I, I think that Gwyneth probably isn't going to convince that many people to change how they, you know, her alone, right. Uh, is how they approach health. But I, I think we need to remember it's part of a broader phenomenon, and, and she's just a really good example of that broader phenomenon. So I like to use the, the absurdity that is goop as an excuse to talk about critical thinking, to talk about science, right? Let's use this pop culture moment uh, to, to have the conversations we're having right now, Scott, right? So uh, I think we need to kind of leverage the, the pop culture noise in order to get across the good science. So. Yeah, let's put let's put the goop phenomenon in perspective, but let's also use it uh, as an opportunity to do good science communication. Clearly, many people in our society are skeptical of an awful lot of things. Any kind of authority figure now is someone we're to be skeptical of, but that extends to medicine. We've got anti-vaxxers. I don't think Gwyneth Paltrow is an anti-vaxxer. I don't know. I don't know if she said that or not. But we have a lot of people who would say, you know, traditional medicine, that's not really... We've got to be skeptical of that. <sighs> How do we deal with that if, if that is the, uh, a thing that is now getting traction? Yeah, and that's, I think that's driving part of the interest in things like alternative treatments and, and, and the kind of wellness um, woo that, that Gwyneth pushes. Uh, and by the way, wellness industry is a $4.2 trillion 
dollar industry. It's a huge wow. business, and a lot of people don't realize that. This is profit, too. Gwyneth's company is a profit company. You know, this is not uh, you know, some service that she's doing for free. This is an infomercial for her brand. But you make a really good point. Um, there are problems with the conventional system. Uh, people often feel ignored and they haven't, like they haven't been listened to. We need to learn from that, right? We need to learn from that and make the conventional system better, more science-based, more evidence-based, uh, make sure that we are listening to people. But those real problems are not a justification for the pushing of misinformation and profiting off bunk. Yeah, and, and th- that is my, cause look, if you're a person who wants to watch this and wants to put a jade egg in places that probably they may or may not be designed to go, I suppose that's your choice until someone is that one person who gets hurt by this. And I know with that one, as I recall, they had to settle, correct? There was a settlement involved in that one because there was some dispute about whether or not it was good for you at all. That's right. They they lost a uh, a lawsuit in in California. In fact, brought by colleagues of mine. It's an NGO called Truth and Advertising. They brought a complaint against Goop, uh, and it was one hundred forty five thousand dollars. You know, saying that you can't say these things about about Jane Higgs and other other absurd things she was selling. Um, you know, one hundred forty five thousand dollars isn't a lot to Gwyneth. It's, she probably views that as the cost of doing business. But now we have a precedent, right, that we can point to and say, you know, this she's a fraud. Now, interestingly, just today, I got a note from my colleagues uh, in California, the Truth and Advertising Organization, and they've brought another complaint against Gwyneth just today on more, I think it was dozens of her products that they believe are misleading. Well, the only advice I can give is if you are going to use a jade egg in that fashion, probably don't sneeze because you could end up breaking <laughs> a tile on your bathroom floor or something. And then, then you've then you got bigger problems too to deal with. So uh, Tim Caulfield, always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for taking the time today. Uh, thanks a lot, Scott. That's it. I mean, look, it's a complicated one because there are people who want to believe and maybe, as he says, there are some people who would do these things and it would work for them. But there's a lot of people who are also saying, yeah, but... And that's a, yeah, big butt. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.